Hey there, humans. Anna Gray here. Welcome to the first episode of my podcast, Girl Talks Crime. I am super excited to be on this journey here, seriously dorking out, ready to delve into these cases with y'all and make sure these stories are told. I'm sure I'm not alone in having a paralyzing fear of being abducted or murdered at some point in my life. Guys, I can't even walk past an alley without running, without getting the heebie-jeebies. And it is a reality that none of us should ever have to face. These people we're going to talk about, these were mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, best friends, sons, daughters, and the list just goes on. No one should ever have to receive news about one of their loved ones as these families have. When I was younger, my older brothers, my naive nature was my worst quality. (laughs) Thank you, Jack. But I actually disagreed with him. I found that remaining positive and seeing the good in people was actually much more challenging than perpetually finding the bad. The only problem with this quality, as I came to learn with more life experience, is that you're the kind of person that misses signs. You aren't as alert as you need to be sometimes, and sometimes you're just too trusting. Many kind hearts meet terrible fates because they had the audacity to see the good in people and trust them. More than anything, I hope this podcast will remind listeners to practice being more cognizant of their own welfare and the welfare of those around them, while also being aware of the warning signs that danger could be imminent. So with that, let's begin. I want to start this podcast with one of the most confounding cases to come out of my home state of North Carolina. Let me tell you about female serial killer Velma Barfield also known as the Death Row Granny. My mother was only nine years old when Velma Barfield was arrested in her hometown. My grandma remembered Velma from the local department store where Velma worked part-time and my grandmother frequently went shopping. I spent much of my childhood going back to school shopping at department stores. It's eerie to think about one of those clerks having the dark side of Velma. Velma Bullard was born to a poor family in South Carolina in the year 1932. She was the second of nine children, born to Murphy and Lily Bullard. Her father was a loom repairman with a dangerous temper. According to sources, he regularly beat Velma, her mother, and her siblings. And I don't even have an adequate response to how horrible that is. Home should be a safe place. 
her mother reportedly never intervened on this abuse. And at the age of 13, sexual abuse started. Velma kept this horrific secret to herself for fear that her mother wouldn't believe her if she told on her dad. In an interview she gave long after her conviction, she said, Things that went on inside our home when I grew up were kept inside. At the age of 17, marriage to Thomas Burke offered Velma an escape. She was desperate for a way out, so she eloped quickly with her high school sweetheart in 1949. The couple had two kids and, on all accounts, seemed to have a pretty normal and pleasant marriage. She was an involved parent, she took an active role in the lives of her two children, and when her kids were well into school, Velma went back to work at a textile plant. But around that time, Velma started to experience intense bouts of pain. Now this is all speculation, but it is thought today that this could have perhaps been endometriosis. Endometriosis occurs when tissue similar to that within the uterus lining grows outside of it. There's still so many unanswered questions about it today, so one can only imagine how limited we were in information in 1965. Velma ended up needing an emergency hysterectomy, and emotionally and physically, this took a significant toll on her. She began to question her worth as a woman and as a wife. She also developed severe back pain as a result of her surgery, which led to a dependence on pain medication, as well as Valium and Librium, two benzos. Velma would go to different doctors to get duplicate doses of her various medications the one she began to abuse. It was around this time that her husband Thomas also sustained significant head injuries in a car accident. This began a significant drinking habit and it took a toll on the family. Fiery arguments became commonplace among the couple. Things were not well. One day, after a particularly heated fight, Velma took off with her two kids in tow, leaving Thomas at home to cool off. While they were gone, Thomas passed out, the house caught flames, and he was killed. A few months later, another fire gripped the house, this time burning it to the ground. This was the first sudden death to surround Velma's life. You heard me right. This was just the first.
A couple of months after her first husband's sudden death, Velma began dating a widowed man named Jennings Barfield. She married him soon after, and she took his last name. A good 16 years older than his new bride, it wasn't much of a shock to anyone when Barfield died of a heart attack after only a year of marriage. Barfield had other health issues, including diabetes, heart disease, and emphysema. Were Jennings a little younger and in better relative health? This death may have alerted something hinky was at play. But he wasn't. And so it didn't. Velma, now twice widowed, moved back home with her mother. Her father had passed away a few years earlier as a result of lung cancer. In 1974, a few years after the death of her second husband, Lily, Velma's mother, began experiencing severe stomach pain, nausea, and vomiting. She was admitted to the hospital with her symptoms, but she seemingly made a full recovery and was sent home. But all was not as it appeared. Months later, she developed the same symptoms, the exact same. But this time, she wouldn't recover. Lily Buller died a day short of the new year. An autopsy was never performed. Now Velma, who all this time had been sustaining a pretty hefty drug habit, spent a few months in jail in 1975 after writing a series of bad checks. When she was released, now parentless and husbandless, she went to work for Montgomery and Dolly Edwards, an elderly couple. Within a year, Montgomery would be dead, followed by his wife only a month later in February of 1977. Now, I'm not sure why at this point more eyebrows weren't raised. Maybe it was because Dolly and her husband were in their 80s and 90s. Maybe it was because no one would ever have suspected that a God-fearing Southern mother would be capable of this, of foul play, of murder. I'm not sure why, but I can tell you, people should have been paying attention. Velma followed this by taking a position caring for another elderly couple, Record and John Henry. And I wish, I wish this is where I could tell you that the cycle stops. That Velma went to look after these folks and nothing bad happened. But that would be a lie. By June of 1977, not even four months after the death of Dolly, John Henry would be dead from 
you guessed it, a quote-unquote severe stomach virus. Records survived, but only because after John's death, Velma moved in with a new boyfriend, Stuart Taylor. Now, Stuart Taylor was a tobacco farmer and widower himself. He wasn't as strong in his faith as Velma, but he supported her convictions. What she knew he wouldn't support, however, was her forging his name on checks to support her drug habit. Velma became paranoid that she had been discovered, and she decided to take matters into her own hands. One night, she took him to a church service. Well into that service, he began to get very ill. Velma took him home and began nursing him back to health. That night, she even called Taylor's daughter to inform her that her father had come down with the flu, but assured her that she had everything under control, that he was in good hands, he was in good care. But within days, Stuart Taylor would be dead. Velma wept openly at the funeral, and family couldn't believe the tragedy that just kept surrounding her life. Why couldn't this woman catch a break? But it wouldn't be long until they had to confront the nasty truth. They didn't know Velma at all. She was at the center of everything. Things took a turn when a phone call from a woman claiming to be Velma's sister called the police, informing them that Stuart Taylor's death was no accident, but that it was a murder carried out by Velma, and it wasn't her first. Unfortunately for Velma, an autopsy was performed on Taylor, and the results were chilling. A deadly dose of arsenic was found in his body. Armed with this information, the police began exhuming the bodies of Lily Bullard, Dolly Edwards, John Henry Lee, and Jennings Barfield. And what do you know? They discovered that all of them had been poisoned. Velma Barfield confessed to four murders, but continued to insist that she didn't take place in the, the deaths of Burke and Barfield. She wasn't responsible for them. But police didn't believe her. They couldn't draw conclusive evidence on Burke because of the flames that engulfed his body, but they found arsenic in Barfield's body like all the rest of the victims. 
So, why lie? Thelma Barfield stood trial for the murder of Stuart Taylor only. She pled guilty by reason of insanity, but her plea was denied. She was sentenced to death. Thelma was imprisoned at Central Prison in Raleigh, North Carolina. Because there was no designated area for women on death row at the time, she was housed in the area for escape-prone and mentally ill inmates. During her time in prison, Thelma rededicated herself to her faith and became a reformed Christian. She spent the latter half of her six years in prison ministering to other inmates. And this ended up being one of the primary driving forces of the appeal to get her sentence commuted to life. The second driving force was a bit more interesting. by a professor of psychiatry at the New York University School of Medicine at the time. Dorothy Otnow Lewis specializes in the study of violent offenders and disassociative identity disorder. Lewis claimed that Barfield suffered from this disorder. She testified that Velma had another identity, an alter, Billy and that Billy was the one who revealed to her that Velma had suffered sexual abuse during her adolescence. A terrible and horrible revelation. She claimed it was Billy who killed the victims, but the judge wasn't convinced. Her appeal in federal court was denied. And after this, Velma told her attorneys not to pursue another appeal at the Supreme Court level. It seems she had accepted her fate. Velma was executed on November 2nd, 1984. Her last meal was a bag of Cheetos and two eight-ounce bottles of Coca-Cola. Before her execution, she released this statement to the public. I know what everybody has gone through a lot of pain. All of the families connected. I am sorry, and I want to thank everybody who have been supporting me all these six years. Velma was buried near her first husband, Thomas Burke, in Parkton Cemetery, Robeson County, North Carolina. Even after all my research, I still have so many questions, and I don't think that's something that's just going to be specific to this case. But why? Why did Velma's sister come forward and tip off the police? Was it really her sister? Why did Velma only confess to four of the six murders when there was evidence she took part in at least five of them definitively? Did Velma actually have dissociative identity disorder? 
was Billy her altar? Why is there not more information on this? This is one of those cases that supports the theory that no one is ever what they seem. I mean, no one ever would have looked at Velma. No one ever did, and theorized she could be a serial killer. That's why she got away with her heinous crimes for as long as she did. And let this be a lesson unto all of us. Not all killers, not all criminals, look scary or set off our internal alarms. Sometimes it's the people we are inclined to trust the most that we need to be the most wary of. As Henry Lee's daughter said after Velma's conviction, I thought the world of Velma. This thing's taught me to distrust everyone. Thank you so much, guys, for tuning in to my first episode. I am so excited to be in this space telling these stories. I am thrilled to be on this journey with y'all. Ready for next week, ready for a new case. Until then, signing off, Anna Gray.